All right, here we go in three, two, one. What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast, a podcast to promote and improve your practice as an athletic trainer. I am Jeremy Jackson, but my friend Ryan Collins will be hosting this one with Jackie Kahagi and Jenna Claire Otten. All right, so they were talking about quad inhibition and, and muscle atrophy, atrophy. So this is one I was really excited to to hear about because as we've been doing with BFR and, you know, four, five, six, seven ACLs and our athletics at school, I'm like, what can we do? I got, there's got to be some stuff I can learn. So um, Ryan's going to do these questions and we're going to learn a little bit about muscle atrophy and quad inhibition. So we're going to go with sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash muscle atrophy for this one. Again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash slash muscle atrophy. Ryan. Thanks, Jerry. Jackie, Jenna. Pleasure Hi. to meet you guys. Hi. So uh, obviously both of y'all's talks kind of gel, go together really well. Uh, Jackie, we'll kind of get started just from your talk uh, when you mentioned uh, your patients in your case study about a non-acute, post-acute ACL coming in with some quad issues. Jenna, your talk talked about how you can get that quad atrophy to come back and all the different signals and pathways we can get that going. So if I ask a question and both of you guys have an answer for me, that'd be great. So let's just start, uh, Jackie, real quick. Uh, you, you briefly talked about the quad tendon and the graft and how it's kind of emerging. Can you just kind of briefly touch on that for uh, trainers and PTs that are seeing that now? Yeah, so it's 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 actually first discovered in the late 1970s, and it, it fell out of favor pretty fast in the 80s because the integrity of the graph was poor, meaning that the harvest of that graph was was not up to par with what some of the other graft options were out there. So with improved kind of harvest techniques, um, and then, you know, it takes a while to do research. It doesn't just happen overnight. Um, you've got decades of kind of research to show that now we've got a comparable um harvest or comparable graft option to kind of the gold standard BTB. And so kind of the hallmark study for, I think, for everybody that came out um, for orthopedic surgeons doing quadrant harvest was in 2016. And Dr. Dr. Shani and Dr. X, like, literally was able were able to create a biomechanical comparison study with kind of our, our previous gold standard BTB to what the quad tendon graft is. And all of those tensile properties were, almost all of them were superior in the quad tendon graft. And so at first it was like, okay, use it in a revision setting, right? When they've already had a BTB, that kind of thing. And now it's become probably in 2018 was when we really were like, okay, let's take a chance. Let's start doing these on primaries. And people had less pain coming in to see the doctor, had were able to kind of progress faster. Um, not everybody was able to progress super fast. And so there's some integrity of like holding patients back just a little bit to make sure that they're safe when they do those activities. But we found specifically, you know, seeing those patients when you put them side by side on a table with a BTB, they hated you less. They were less painful. Um, they were sleeping better at night. They were able to gain weight faster, better protein, like, like all the things that we were like, Ooh, this is like really getting good. Um, and so kind of, that's what, what took the mark off was kind of in the 16, 17, 18. And we really started to see more. So you mentioned you saw about 400 cases since about 2016. Do you expect that number to exponentially increase? Yeah, it's going to skyrocket. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I'll be really transparent, honest. Our pro athletes are, some of them are still getting BT because that's the gold standard we know it works like right why, why change something if we know we're doing a pretty good job with those guys but um you know our surgeons are, are are able to look at the profile of the patient and say what's the right thing for this patient and that quad is really gaining 
um, traction as, as a favorable option. And they're doing really, really well. And the research on quad inhibition and post pain from surgery and all that stuff, is it uh, at the same, better? So for quad inhibition, that's kind of what I was saying um, in the talk is like, we don't, we don't really have that data yet, right? But what we do have are things like, um, you know, the, how much anterior knee pain they have. Like there's some studies that talk about retear rates. There's some studies that show that basically retear rates are the same quad tendon versus BTB because that's kind of, everybody wants to know, like, are, are these going to fail? No, they don't fail. Um, in fact, they have less anterior knee pain. Patients can kneel. There, there was a study out there, and I'm not as good as some of my partners here. I can't quote you, but they have 10-year data on how, how much anterior knee pain and how well they were able to squat and kneel. They have 10-year data on quadrantograph. Like, that kind of blew my mind. I was like, oh, wow, this is not new. It's just new to us, right? So um, those patients are doing well, and I think that's what is, is kind of gaining traction for our surgeons. So, Jenna, um, real acute, whether it's bone tendon, bone, quad tendon, what are some of the, the – well, not some of the – what are the, some of the reasons why we're having this inhibition – that you're going to see in a typical post-op knee and then, you know, ways we can kind of get around it, skirt around it. Yeah, good question. So in the real acute phase, it does not look different whether you're looking at different graft types as far as the inflammatory profile. So you still have peaks in IL-6, TNF-alpha, TGF-beta, and they all basically signal to the rest of your body that something is going wrong. So it's like your SOS signal to the body. Now, when that happens, the big thing that changes is the way that we signal to the muscle. So if there's something wrong at the knee joint, the muscle inherently stops doing what it should be doing to protect the knee joint and decrease the motion, right? While we know that if we can get that working and basically counteract that early on in the rehabilitation process, regardless of graft type, um, then the patients are going to fare better um, and our risk of re-injury is going to be lower and lower. Um, I think the big thing that we need to consider is is the central changes that we see, right? And that's probably the least studied um, because it's really hard to study the brain when we're thinking about the knee, right? Um, and the availability of the, the tools and the resources to be able to do that. I think some really good studies have come out talking about external focus. So basically tricking the brain into firing the quad without us thinking about firing the quad. So basically how can we find this workaround or this loophole to be able to activate the quad? Um, and that goes into playing with basically all of this, all of the cell signals that I just talked about. So um, decreasing the swelling so we don't have that arthrogenic muscle inhibition, decreasing that local inflammatory response, um, and then also stimulating the muscle both at a peripheral level and then at a central level. Um, and I know that we'll talk a little bit more about that with the cryotherapy on one of tomorrow's talks. Um, Dr. Kennedy will talk a little bit more on um, how we can augment arthrogenic muscle inhibition through the use of ice and um, different modalities of cryotherapy as well. So seeing post-op knees, uh, obviously you see them day one, day two, you know, really flared up. Is there a time frame where you're going too fast in trying to turn down the natural body's response to an injury of sorts? Surgery is an injury to the body, right? So, you know, you talked about uh, compression. We talked about insets. Do you want to allow a certain amount of time or a certain degree of that uh, applied to the patient? before you, I mean, start interrupting with important things? No worries. So I, I would say that we still want the natural healing process to happen within that acute phase. And that's the biggest thing. Um, and then as, as time progresses, 
the knee should get quiet, right, without overloading it. And that's the thing that we want to make sure that we're keeping consistent throughout the entire phase uh, of the rehabilitation process, whether that's at the one-month mark, the three-month mark, the 12-month, or even the two-year mark, that if we have these acute phases um, of swelling and inflammation, that we basically restart that signal within the muscle. Um, so keeping it nice and quiet is, is kind of the goal. So uh, that should be your guide as far as when when is the right time to start progressing into some of the newer and fancier uh, rehabilitation uh, protocols or processes. Right. So we have uh, you sp- spoke on NMES, right? We've been you know, as therapists and trainers, we learn about uh, electrical stimulation pathways and getting the muscles to turn on and rushing and all the different protocols that come along with that. Has anything changed recently about NMES and protocols and things like that? Anything, anything updated with that? I've changed. I probably underutilized it the majority of my career. Like, I was like, ah, okay, you know, we need a little stem, a couple minutes, but volitional, like flex your brain, go, go, go. Yeah. And I think the game changer for me was, was you know, I, I was on my dozenth, you know, two dozen, three dozen ACL, and I still, for quadrant and graph specifically, and I was still struggling to get them to be able to do a heel pop or a leg lift without you know, quad lag or extensor lag. And I was like, okay, I got to change. I got to provide some kind of like external input because me just yelling at them saying, squeeze your quad wasn't working. Right. And so they were like trying and they're like squeezing out tears and they're like, I can't squeeze my quad anymore. And so I was like, okay, I, I got to be smarter. Right. So I think I, I made a change. So I don't know if I've seen anything in literature that says, I know an article recently came out. Um, again, I can't quote it, but it, I, I looked into it because it talked about using NMES, like I think an hour a day, three times a day. This is a recent one, and I was like, "Ooh, that that's a that's a lot of enemy has. <laughs> like, that's a lot of nothing else in your life, you know." So, um, so I, I mean, I, I I think there's a time and place for it, and I'm I'm not against using it, even if you know we get to a level and the patient's doing something, and I'm like, "Hey, let's just spend a day doing this. Let's just respect the tissue healing. Like, you obviously reacted to whatever we added to your kind of, you know, your load capacity, and we added a little too much. Maybe today we just kind of take a recovery day and we throw in some NMES or we throw in some BFR or something like that. So, I think perspective is good. So, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You have a fourteen sixteen week out. ACL comes in and they have a, a small thigh, tiny quad, no activation. You mentioned on your your talk, uh, you know, basically knee flexion and stance and gait, and just not unable to do a, an open chain mm-hmm. full knee extension. So, um, if we could backtrack, right, and see that patient from the start and get the necessary treatments going forward, what would be your ideal uh, volume? Uh, Dosing frequency, like what's the best way to All keep the hard questions. right? So, I mean, ultimately, so, like, so we have you know muscle inhibition, we have yeah. atrophy starting up. Like, what are the things that we can do? Ideal situation, yeah. right? Yeah, not one time a week. No, but the yeah. I, I, I think for for a lot of our patients, it goes pre-op therapy. Like, I think we're doing a disjustice by not doing some type of pre-operative because the minute they go into surgery, you're shutting down their all the fancy words Jenna Claire said, like you're shutting all of that down. Like it's just like crash and burn, right? So can we heighten it before you go in and get put under anesthesia and we cut open your knee and we dig around in there and drill, you know, tunnels in your bone, all the things that would continue to help disrupt that activation. Can we do something early on to help eliminate that? And so I don't know, maybe the enemyist three hours a day isn't such a bad idea preoperatively, but something, something where they're doing volitional activation, where they're doing, you know, 
some way to get rid of some of the, you know, inflammatory response early, maybe those things would help us postoperatively. And so that would be a great study to be able to perform or do um, to say like, hey, this person needs, and, and I don't know what the magic wand is. Like, I don't know how much dosing, I don't know how much load, but definitely enough to be, to be where they can, it's not just quad sets and leg lifts, but like, are you able to do a squat? Can you ride the bike? Can you, you know, you should be able to do those things ACL deficient. You shouldn't be able to rotate, cut, change the direction, but you should be able to do some like linear motion activities and be able to load your leg pretty well. Jenny, you talked about nutrition. Like how soon would you suggest as therapists and people who treat uh, early acute patients, how soon should they be on top of their nutrition for their recovery and, and trying to eliminate and, and minimize the atrophy? I'm going to echo what Jackie just said is you should probably be looking at it preoperatively. Um, so that way we're not playing catch up after surgery. Um, also making sure that just because they're not eating to perform or making sure that their nutrition is on point for performance, that we're on point for recovery as well. So if we're, if we're seeing that muscle degeneration and then we're not providing enough um, building blocks to be able to rebuild that muscle, um, then they're never going to be able to see those changes that they want to see and get back to that athletic level. So making sure um, that that's where that needs to be prior to surgery and then making sure that we're staying on top of it all the way through. Um, there's a lot of literature to suggest that what we eat impacts the way that our body as a system um, responds with inflammatory processes. And so if we can minimize that um, and kind of offset what we're already incurring as like a second insult injury in the inflammatory process, then I, I, this is all anecdotal, but I think that that would be the best, uh, best case scenario for recovery. So make, making sure that we're covering all of our bases. I think it's something that's probably underlooked um, and definitely underutilized as far as the um, resources that we have as far as dietitians and, and their um, insights for the recovery process. So, um, Jackie, your, your case study came in with a pretty poor quad activation. So if you're saying why, you don't, know really, you don't really know why, you, you, you saw her, how she was performing. So if we were to say, um, and Jenna, you can talk on this too, whenever we try and activate the quad, and Jackie, you've seen this, where patient comes in, using biofeedback, they have a really no number, and then the frequency that they do it for, the volume in that session, you see an improvement in activation. And then they go away for a week and they come yep. back and it goes straight back to yeah. the, you know, the first time you did it. So you're like, so Jenna one, you know, Jackie, you've seen that before, but yeah. also is it uh, that early on where if you just go home and they sit there and twiddle their thumbs and play on their, play on their phone, is it just the, the, the lack of frequency of telling that muscle to turn on? Is it that they, you know, non weight bearing status, they don't get the chance to turn it on. So it doesn't have a job to do. Like what are those early issues that we can kind of yeah. get ahead of i'll speak first and then and then let the smart one go but um i i think you bring up a key and something that i was thinking about when jenna claire started talking about is that that latency is key and i i don't know on every person customizable so kind of i come hard out of the gate right and i try to respect tissue healing but i treat everyone those first seven days like they're going to go downhill and so I'm doing everything I can to kind of pull them up and hold them up. And then I might go to them a few days later and be like, all right, you don't need to do this every single hour anymore. Like you've kind of accomplished, you've mastered that task. Let's like dial it back, let the tissues heal. Or maybe they have a, you know, swelling moment or something like that. And so I need to kind of respect the tissue healing, but that latency is key. And I don't, it's different on every single person. And so, like I said, I, I treat, I treat every person like they're going to come in that next day and be worse. Like I'm like, okay, let me, let me give you all the tools you need to fight this as hard as you can so that you don't come back in and we like slid downhill. Um, I do think on these patients, 
sometimes they come in day one, 24 hours out of surgery or less, and they, they don't look that bad. Like they're kind of, you know, got all this anesthesia blowing through their system and they're like, ah, I can squeeze my quad, right? I can do a leg lift. And then they come back the very next day or two days later and they look horrible, right? And so I kind of have prepped them mentally like, hey, you're going to slide backwards a little bit. Don't let that, you know, don't let that deter you. You fight even harder to like not get into that pattern. So that, that kind of gives kind of two perspectives, but do you want to clear? Yeah. So I'm going to give one plug to genetics and that's the only thing that I'm going to say about this. But I will say that I I do think the future of some of these studies is to be able to look at some genetic markers because different people respond with uh, the inflammatory process than a totally different individual. So that probably will account for some of the variability we see with these standardized rehabilitation programs and why some people respond and some people continue to struggle throughout them. But I think with all rehabilitation protocols and um, even with just strength and conditioning protocols, right? Consistency is key regardless of what approach we're taking. Um, If you think about you're scrolling through Instagram, right? And it's very tailored for the type of ads that they're going to send you. And maybe the first time you see an ad, you can kind of just continue to scroll past it. But the more and more you see that ad, it kind of builds in that threshold and you keep being remembered, uh, reminded about it. And then eventually you're just going to break down and probably buy the thing that they're trying to sell you on Instagram, right? Same things happen with your cells and your with your muscles, right? So it's kind of this threshold that we continue building through consistency. Um, and that's when we see the greatest success. And that's probably the same type of mindset that um, all of these ads are playing as well. So consistency, consistency with whatever you're choosing to do modality wise um, is going to demonstrate some level of success. Now, whether we have to kind of pick and choose what's going to be best for each athlete is, is very um much where that clinical judgment comes into play and kind of seeing where your patient is responding and, and where you need to actually make those changes after, after maybe not seeing a change, um, for a few weeks. So now we got our 12 to 16, 16 week out patient atrophy in the quad, right? Uh, Jackie, you went through kind of in your talk about ways that you assessed, but then also ways you tried to treat out and you spoke on open chain Quad activation. Yeah. It's kind of a, obviously a long standing debate, muddy water <laughs> issue, right? Uh, first off, any differences in grafts that we would need to consider, but two, also when and why? Yeah. When I, and why do you do it? I mean, you got to be smart. There's there's a time and a place for everything. And, and you know, people ask me this all the time like, how early am I doing short arc quads? Um, you know, hopefully I won't lose all my referrals, um, after, after this talk. Um, but with it, with a BTB, it, it's, it's, uh, it's different. It's, it's different when, when they go in there and they take that tendon, you know, part of that sensor mechanism and they harvest bone, their ability to do a short arc quad or some type of open chain motion is going to be, is going to be different. Um, and I'm, I, while I want it to be all volitional and I want them to be in full control of that, I will, let them cheat. I'll have them use a strap. I'll help a little bit. And I think dosing is key. Like I said in the talk, you don't have to do three sets of anything. You could do two of something and be like, you know what? Congratulations. You did an amazing job today. Tomorrow we're going to try two more. Like it doesn't have to be a lot, but you've got to be able to activate it. I will, I will plug in one thing for BTBs. If you don't create load to that region early, you're going to make it mad later. 
when you get to a point when they're decelerating, they're having to load it rate of torque development or rate of force development quickly, um, or, or, or some type of plyometric training. If you haven't loaded the tendon, if we don't start tendon loading now, if we're, if we're not Jill cooking all of our patients like really, really early, we're going to aggravate the heck out of them later on. Well, you're, and you're, so you're creating a tendinopathy. Patient. That's right. Because you're offloading them. You're, you're, you're like staying away from what hurts. So I'm like, Hey, I've got healing happening. I've got vascular, it's bleeding. Like all, all the things that Jenna Claire talking about, Ooh, this like gets me excited. Like let them, let them hurt just, just a tiny, tiny bit. Um, but you have to be smart. You know, if you would have told me that 15 years ago, I would have said, you're crazy. Like, I'm not doing open chain on people. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Yeah, it may make their quad stronger, but I'm going to make their knee really mad. And I don't want to lose my referrals and I don't want to, you know, piss off a knee and that kind of thing. So I, I think I'm much different now. I do think quad tendon grafts are probably a little bit more able to do a short arc quad a little sooner. So for some of my patients, it's a couple of days out of surgery and we do three or four or five, maybe 10, you know, maybe I'll do three sets of three, something like that. Um, some of that's with assistance. Some of it's not. Um, I think you just have to be smart and kind of going back to the idea of like looking, you know, genetically customizable. Like I don't have that genetic hinds, you know, insight into my patient's knee, but I've got to be able to read the signs. I've got to be able to watch them, stand next to them, see what they're doing and talk them through that. Like how bad does it hurt? Can you lift? Can you try anyway? Those kinds of things. If you just say, oh, do short arc motion and then walk off you're likely going to hurt your patient. They're going to hurt themselves, like something. So I think you have to stay close to that topic and idea, but I'm not afraid of open chain motion. I do think that there's a point, like with my patient, um, that I was like, ooh, let's do open chain motion with her and isolate her quad. And then the more she did, the more patellofemoral pain she got. Like I was just grinding her kneecap right inside that trochlear groove. And so you, you got to have enough quad activation. you got to have enough quad strength to be able to do that motion or you're going to make her knee mad. So, so when you talk about uh, three sets of three or it doesn't have to be three sets of 10, obviously I think that's one of our downfalls as a physical therapy yeah. group is that we have poor uh, programming, yeah. right? Or we're scared to program accordingly, right? And, and Jenny, you talked about communication to the muscle, right? I think ultimately uh, exercises should create some sort of communication and feedback that you have achieved. What you're trying to get with an open chain is quad communication, right? And so early on, like what are, I mean, Jack, you could speak on this too. Like what are some things that we're looking for to know that we're creating that right communication? And then how important is that down the road to continue to avoid that, that atrophy? You want to go first? You go first. That's fine. (laughs) They, they, oh man, that was a big question. Um, Okay. I'll go first. Just let you think on it a little bit. So I will say as far as I mean, early on, we're respecting the healing process, right? So ultimately, we want to allow that natural process to occur when to load. Um, there, there are a lot of just standardized loading protocols, like when it's appropriate to start adding resistance, and it's always going to be patient-dependent as well. Um, I will say, as far as determining when to progress, the biofeedback that Jackie demonstrated on the video is is a really great way to assess. So basically you can take that biofeedback device, you can look to see what their maximal uh, contraction is for that day. And that might be different, right? Yeah. Depending on what time you see them, depending on what's been, what you guys have trained earlier on before that. Um, but you can use that maximal um, output that they can do for that day and kind of track that over time to see if we're actually making a change or are they taking a dip and we need to kind of regress. Um, but then also 
watching what they're able to hit threshold wise within that. So if they're able to demonstrate consistency over two to three sessions where they're able to hit that, that would be where I'm thinking, okay, we're, we're ready to kind of progress to a little bit more challenging weather complexity of task or a little bit more load all within respect to that healing process. So within those acute phases, we basically want to keep things quiet and let it heal. Um, and then, and then use that clinical judgment in there. And Jackie, you can speak a little bit more towards when you would start to load. Yeah. I mean, we, we do kind of this biofeedback sandwich where we'll have them do five minutes of biofeedback and, and where it's very volitional. We're trying to excite that pathway and then we'll put NMES on them and maybe it's five or 10 minutes of that. And then another five minutes of biofeedback after that. Um, you know, how do we came up with that? I have no idea. Probably based on time. Right. I mean, but at some point we start to see a trend of what work, what works. And we're like, Ooh, let me, let me recreate that on the next patient. It's when it doesn't work that it makes me think outside the box. Like, Hey, this didn't, this didn't create, you know, um, like carryover to the next day or didn't create a carryover to that, that next exercise or that activity. So I think those are those gaps or those kind of areas that are difficult or hard is where we're going to grow in our profession and where we're going to be better at what we do. So I think one last thing we could talk about, though, just obviously a big topic right now is BFR. Um, it hits kind of both the communication of the mm-hmm. muscle, but also the rehab and the loading that you talked about. Uh, kind of like that metabolic disturbance that's important for hypertrophy and moving down down the road with that. Uh, can you speak on that, Jackie? On BFR applications, you kind of mentioned in your talk how you could utilize it, but also, Jenna, just like how it affects the body chemically and cellular-wise. Yeah, so um, part of part of what I, what I do when I left full time patient care to be a clinical physical therapy researcher was to to work on um, a study that was through a trauma consortium. So it's all femur fracture patients who've been fixed with an IMN, and then um, they get randomized to either receive BFR or not. And um, you know, I. I saw a couple of things that I wish I, I could have gone back and been part of the protocol to develop it. Um, but the rate of torque development, so we measure them serial, we, we do serial measurements at the beginning of every week on these patients with a handheld dynamometer. And, you know, six and 12 months from, they all kind of evened out and everybody kind of had about the same strength. But the ability to create quad force, not only rate of force, but how fast they were able to get that force was much better in patients um, who had the BFR. And it wasn't just quad. We saw it in the hip. We saw it in, um, you know, hip abduction, hip extension, hamstring development. Like I was kind of blown away that even though it was a quad heavy loaded program, they got better in kind of all the things that we were assessing. So, you know, that, that really lit the fire for me. And I was like, Ooh, this BFR thing is, is really going to take off. Um, the other thing that we found is, an analgesic effect. So I'm putting it on patients um, who have knee pain and I have them do a short arc quad or, or, or some type of activity that maybe hurt, you know, without BFR. When they put BFR on their pain, it doesn't necessarily diminish, but I don't know if they're so focused on the fact that their leg feels like it's going to fall off or blow up, but they don't have knee pain anymore. And I'm like, Ooh, now I can get my benefit. I can get them to do the exercise I want them to do. The other thing that, um, uh, that we're seeing is, I saw this in the in the BFR study that I'm a part of is, you know, with a femur fracture, you're obviously going to have some range of motion deficits. So lacking things like hip flexion, knee flexion, knee extension, right? Well, the ones that were randomized to receive BFR immediately after the first or second session of BFR had a change in their range of motion, like enough to make me stop and like go back and look at the numbers and be like, okay, are we 
are we keeping up with this? Like, we need to publish this. Um, and so I actually called Johnny myself, and I was like, uh, John, Johnny Owens, like, what, what's going on here? Like, why, why is there like lytic effect when all of a sudden this patient can bend their knee or straighten their knee or move their hip way better in two or three visits? And he said, yeah, they're studying it from a cellular level of like what's happening, happening in BFR to create that. So, so speaking more from the cellular and molecular level, uh, the impacts of BFR. So I talked a little bit about acutely what happens with the cells. So you're creating this hypoxic environment, which just changes the, the balance that we see within cells, right? So they're living in this kind of homeostasis. And when we decrease their ability to recycle those uh, metabolites that happen as a result of the use of the muscle, um, we shoot them into this kind of hypoxic state, right? So it signals that anabolic effect of the muscle. Um, now, we do know that that happens acutely with the cells, but it also signals the satellite cells, which are the inherent stem cells that are present within the skeletal muscle tissue, um, to mature and differentiate. So not only do we have the opportunity to grow the tissue that's already present, but we also have the opportunity to possibly create new tissue. So there have been some studies into the activation of those satellite cells as well. Um, and then just speaking on kind of that analgesic effect, right? So we think about uh, the impact on the skeletal muscle tissue, but we're, we're also um, basically occluding the blood flow from the nerves that are basically sending that afferent signal up the chain. Um, so if we think about the impact that we have locally, it's not just skeletal muscle tissue. It's not just the joint that we're seeing, but it's kind of this big picture of what are all of the components that comprise this knee joint um, and all of the surrounding tissues as well. Does the fact that the hypoxic environment create that fatigue state in a muscle also allow or help that muscle recruit more of itself, right? Like mm-hmm. You have certain thresholds of how much the muscle needs to turn on, especially when we're reducing load. Mm-hmm. So whenever you get into that later stage of hypoxia and fatigue, right, more muscle has to kick in. And that's, I think that's ultimately the idea, right? Right. So if you think about the concepts of, our, of training, right, so we basically create those anabolic or hypoxic events um, and it stimulates the muscle to basically have this like surplus or supply of those uh, byproducts to be able to utilize when they are in that hypoxic state. Um, same concept. So I think uh, Jackie spoke earlier about their utilization of BFR, not only for rehab and recovery, but also in performance now um, at the Olympic level. So I think we'll probably see more of that evolve as we can kind of study it a little bit more uh, in greater depth going forward you know it's funny you bring that up because like kind of playing around with it not not playing around with it but just just using it in varying types of um like the recovery process so so i think i said this on the bfr training last year but i was like you know I started, I started using it and there was a point where I was like, okay, you can lift heavy stuff. You don't need BFR anymore. Let's take it off of you. And then we'd work them out three or four days in the week. And then they'd show up on Friday and be like gassed. And I was like, all right, well, maybe today's a BFR day. Right. And so we kind of started doing this where it wasn't on this hypertrophy typical protocol of like three or four days a week. And it wasn't super intense. It was only like every Friday, every Friday they would come in and do a BFR, BFR. And then all of a sudden I saw a change in their ability to progress that next level. Like we moved to plyometrics or single leg plyometrics got better, something like that. So I was like, Maybe I don't need to be using it three times a week on every single person. Maybe it's just a one time a week and it, and it somehow created better recruitment total, like overall, and it allowed them to kind of advance to the next level. So I think you bring up a good point. Which I think you, when you have tension and you have load, you're doing other things to the muscle and the tendon unit that maybe at a lighter load yeah. and with the BFR, it doesn't create that same. So the, the recovery is potentially improved to allow them to perform yeah. at a higher level. Um, but just in general, it's nothing wrong with a deload week yeah. to also yeah. feel good going into your next, not even a week, a set, right? Set yeah. or even a day where you feel better going into your next session. Thanks, guys. Of course.
So again, this is going to be sportsandmedicinebroadcast.com slash muscle atrophy. Um, Jackie, if someone wants to get a hold of you to find out more, what's going to be the best way to do that? Uh, you can approach me by email. So it's jacqueline.clahigie at memorialherman.org. So happy to spell that out if y'all need that. Or I'll, I'll or, put it in the show notes. Yeah, that sounds that. great. So yeah, just shoot me an email. I'm happy to like chat over things. And I always learn even from questions. People ask me stuff, especially Ryan Collins over here, ask me hard questions. I'm like, ooh, let me go look that up or think of that or something like that. So happy to answer any questions and then jenna claire uh same thing it's jenna hyphen claire dot auten at memorialherman.org very cool and again i'll put those in the show notes at sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash uh, muscle atrophy and again i know you mentioned femur fracture but that was actually one of the very first people that we used bfr on and then that kid i sat and watched him play baseball this year so it's just it's super cool and they're like oh man that it was, it was a game changer like that that was the biggest thing yeah, so absolutely Love the BFR, but really cool. Really excited to learn about this other stuff. So thank you all very much, Ryan. Again, thank you for the interview. And that is a wrap. Thanks for having us.